I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Andres Modak, who's the co-founder and co-CEO of Snow. Andres, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Carl. Um, I, will, I will point out that Andres was very nice uh, to host us at an event we had in Manhattan, which is how I met him and how I got to know about snow. So we're th- very thankful for him for that. Uh, Andres is also a, a graduate of the Wharton School, Wharton grad 12, I think. And uh, uh, the, the website for snow is called, and I'm going to spell, I'm going to say it first, then I'll spell it, Snow Home. But it's snow, S-N-O-W-E, so S-N-O-W-E, home.com. Andres, give us the elevator pitch for snow. Sure, happy to. So snow is, uh, first and foremost, a vertical brand. We're building the home goods destination for the contemporary consumer. What we do is we simplify shopping for the home by providing, designing, and selling the perfect luxury quality home essentials at attainable prices. So what does that mean? We're primarily an e-commerce platform, but we are our own brand. We design and develop and sell luxury quality linens, bed linens, bath linens, glassware, flatware, dinnerware, all of your basics, all of your foundational goods, and we do that directly to the consumer online. All of these products are designed and developed to be absolutely exceptional, but at very disruptive prices. And we're able to achieve that through innovative product design, cutting out middlemen and markups, and selling directly to the consumer. We've also really simplified and streamlined the process of shopping for the home. So instead of having to go out and shop multiple stores or sift through millions of SKUs on a, on a large website or what have you, we've streamlined it with a really simple, clean user experience, one-click ordering of products or bundles, and content that helps guide you to the purchase. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're building a brand. Uh, a brand that we want to to really feel absolutely disruptive because we were actually kind of tired of the brands that were out there in the home space. And we wanted to create a brand that felt unconventional and aspirational and one that really showed the way that we live today. Okay. So this is a, this is a crowded space. So maybe you can help us a little bit with, with differentiation. So I, I would say, you know, if you just pick some of the giants that are in this space, it'd mm-hmm. be people like a, a Crate and Barrel, who would be mm-hmm. more in, in a mid-price range, and then an IKEA, of course, at the at the lower end. So, so take some of those big established retailers who have a lot of assortment, uh, mm-hmm. good design, and reasonable prices, and tell us how you, th- why you think you there's a there's a space you can carve out there. Absolutely. So the reason we started Snow, and I think this will help answer the question a little bit, is that my partner, Rachel, and I, uh, being a, a young couple moving to a big city, setting up our home after grad school, went to all of those stores. We went to the Ikeas, to the Crate and Barrels, and to even up to the, to the higher ends as well. And it was either entry-level, often disposable quality products, or, or luxury that was outside of our price range or outside of our reach. We didn't feel like we were finding the quality of design at the price points that we needed um, or that we were able to afford. And so the products that we offer are on par, if not better, than what you'd find at a luxury department store, whether it's you know 100% Limoges porcelain dinnerware or 
100% Egyptian cotton bedding that's milled and spun and woven and finished in Italy. Um, but at a price point that would be on par, if not lower, than a lot of things that would be offered at, like a crate and barrel, for mm-hmm. example. So it, we're often sort of called, uh, we've been sort of called by, by press and otherwise, uh, the elevated IKEA, mm-hmm. in the sense that you're able to go in, you have a, a limited set of options, um, and oftentimes very little, because we feel like we're providing the foundation for your home that you can then come in and paint on top of. It's sort of the, the, you know, when you go and invest in a few key pieces, like a the perfect white shirt or the perfect set of designer jeans, that is what we're offering for the home. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually uh, didn't respond well to walking into the big box retailers and having way too much choice. That idea of the paradox of choice was, was hit, hit home for us. And so that's what we were responding to. So that's where we fit into the picture. Yeah, got it. So maybe we could take us just a little, another level deeper into what the assortment feels like. So maybe you could start with what categories you are selling into and then maybe pick a category and tell us what, sure. the, what the shelf would look like. Absolutely. So we think about categories more on a functional level than what you typically go into a store. We want, we want this to resonate with how you actually live with these products because the, our thought is that you're investing in these products to last a long time, but you're using them every single day. And each one of those products is ev- elevating those, those little moments in, in everyday life. So we, cate- we categorize by uh, function, eat, drink, sleep, and bathe. So to give you an example, sleep, uh, one of our larger categories. We have uh, a tight assortment of a few different types of bedding. We work directly with factories in Italy and Portugal to develop luxury bedding. Um, and it's, you know, there's, there's a few different options, whether it's uh, percale bedding, which is a particular type of cotton weave, or sateen bedding. We've developed a couple of new uh, weave textures um, to respond to the demands of our customers. We developed a new uh, weave called soft texture, which is a washed cotton weave. Um, but we'll basically vertically provide you all of the components you need to get your bed done. So whether it's the sheeting, the pillows, the comforters, um, the top of bed accessories, throws, uh, and other things like that. And all of these products um, are are offered within a particular subset of that category. Mm-hmm. So it makes it really easy when you go in. You choose a color, you choose a weave, and then you build your bed. And then if you really want to make it simple, we have bundles. And we've created these bundles that are preset for you, and they all come with a certain additional um, level of value that's built into it if you buy it all at once. And you can just point, click, and shoot and have that whole bundle arrive to your home ready to go. So calibrate us a little bit on on pricing. So sheets, I know, are are sometimes shockingly expensive if you've never shopped for sheets before, but and, uh, and also tremendous v- uh, variance in prices. Absolutely. So let's say a, a king a, a king set of sheets uh, with a duvet cover, which is probably one of your something like that is probably one of your bundles. Give us a sense of what your yeah. offer is and and what I would pay for it. Yeah. Sure. Well, let's go with our most popular. So, okay. for example, a, a queen sheet set, okay. which is our the, the one that we sell the most of. All right. A queen sheet set that we would sell to you, um, whether it's sateen or percale, will cost you $198. Mm-hmm. That quality, let's go with the percale, which is our most popular. That's a 500 thread count, 100% Egyptian cotton bedding that is spun, milled, woven, um, finished in Italy at a factory that's been around for generations. 
and we're selling that to you at 198. That mm-hmm. would be on par with the quality that you'd find from the ultra luxury brands that you'd find in a luxury department store like a Frette or a Svera or a Pertesi that you would probably spend easily $1,000 for a sheet set. Mm. Um, and that's that difference in, in price point is, is what we're offering beyond, you know, the design and the quality and all those other things. And, and what would I pay in, in Macy's? In Macy's, you can probably spend anywhere between, you know, $100 for something very low end mm-hmm. all the way up to six or $700 mm-hmm. for something on the higher end. All right. All right. Well, that's that, that paints, a, I think, a, a nice clear picture for our listeners as to what the what the position is. You know, you, you sound uh, quite expert. Now, part of that is you've been doing it for a while, but I wonder if you could go back to the origin story. You and Rachel were looking to furnish a home, but had you had, had either of you had any prior background in, in any part of this business? A little bit. So I, I grew up in a family uh, very heavily entrenched in, in home design. My mother's an architect and an interior designer. Um, I grew up with with sort of my own interest and taste in design. I did a lot of fine arts growing up. And so I always had that, that sort of leaning, but I hadn't worked in that space. I worked in strategy consulting and private equity and real estate. Rachel uh, actually spent a lot of her time working in real estate as well, but always had interest in fashion design and, um, and other areas that were you know, tangent-related. Uh, but the two of us you know, starting this really did not know anything about product development um, or, or the home space as it related to the products themselves. What we did do is after Wharton, when we graduated, we started working on a slightly different iteration, um, a slightly different business that was in the e-commerce space. But what we were doing was aggregating um, artisanal design uh, for the home across primarily decorative accessories. And that's where we really cut our teeth. It was our first sort of foray into retail. Neither of us really had much experience in the space. Um, But we built a site basically on our own and and tested it and launched it and and really sort of built our own foundation in the space. And we ended up pivoting away from that after that learning experience and going, you know, uh, completely into snow at that point. And and maybe talk a little bit about that, about that pivot and about validating the opportunity I mean, how did you decide, had this focus evolved, or or did you try lots of things and pick the one that, that worked? Yeah, yeah so, so when we worked on the, the previous uh, concept, it was sort of a side business. Uh, we were working, both I was working back in consulting and Rachel was working in investment banking. The two of us would get together in the evening afterwards and stay up all night working on, on the site and the products and the sourcing and, and the development and everything. And, you know, we, we launched it after about six months and we were aggregating products and working directly with artisans and, and to source that product. What we realized was, was a couple of things. One, we felt like building a brand on top of aggregated product was really difficult, particularly in a very crowded space. Mm-hmm. Um, we also found that the, the value proposition had a, had a little bit of an, a paradox at, at, at the core of it in the sense that we were trying to drive value in something that was very much handmade. And we, we found ourselves butting up against, you know, uh, the nature of how the products were sourced. And then at the end of the day, we, it was very specific product. And, and the business could only be so big uh, in that space. And so what we did is we, we shifted away and we realized during that process that in speaking to our customers and in speaking to our peers, they really wanted a brand that would give them all of their essentials, all of their foundation and all of their basics. 
And in speaking to a lot of our friends that were starting to uh, get married and, and cohabitate and set up their first home or perhaps even their second home, what they were missing when they were searching was, was essentially what we're offering in snow. And so that's when we took the shift and we spent the better part of a year uh, working on everything from the product development to the brand design to some testing and focus grouping um, and then got up to launch. And where in that process did you quit your jobs? Uh, right around the time that we essentially pivoted and, uh, and went full, full pelt into, into building snow. So there was, in that sense, a real leap of faith because you had no revenue, you didn't know if it would work, and it really was just a concept until you were able to actually launch the site. Yes, that's, that's definitely true. There was a huge leap of faith. I think having gone through the exercise of the, of the previous concept and really understanding what we weren't able to offer, where we fell short, and, and where the opportunity really uh, lay, we were able to go into it with the level of conviction that we, we, we did. Um, I think also what we realized very quickly after having done the, the you know, moonlighting thing was that it required every ounce of our attention mm -hmm. and our focus and our dedication and conviction. And so we did make that shift at that point in time. And I think that's the only way we were able to get it off the ground, uh, you know, in a little bit under a year, particularly because we were going multi-category. Going multi-category, you know, launching with 100 SKUs and, and doing that all at once, I think you know, we, there's no way we would have been able to do that uh, had we not been fully focused on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Talk. Tell us a little bit about about financing. So you you launched with a hundred SKUs. That means you have mm -hmm. to commit to production on a hundred SKUs. Yeah. Um, what kind of financial commitment and 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 how did you manage that? Yeah. So we we actually uh, prior to launch we we raised a little bit of capital, uh, primarily through uh, convertible debt. Uh, friends and family. Mm -hmm. um, we did that in a few separate tranches uh, iteratively over the course of uh, a few years. Um, and we did that. We started to bring in some more sophisticated investors, a few early stage VCs. We brought in some angels from other direct-to-consumer brands um, and, and, sorry, founders of direct-to-consumer brands and other angels. We brought in actually a few strategic investors, um, the heads of or the companies themselves that were in some of the spaces that were either even directly competitive, but actually, uh, you know, complementary, or um, or others that were in the retail space that could provide guidance and support and and learnings and all kinds of things to us. And so we did that over the course of uh, you know a, a, a roughly two and a half year period. Yeah. Andres, I'm I'm getting tired just thinking about sourcing a hundred SKUs uh, prior to launch, and I wonder if you could talk us through how you did that and and uh, what advice you'd give. Now, I will point out, uh, just an observation or a guess, that most of these categories are, you're not inventing new science typically, and so you're working with a supplier and basically making selection decisions or product parameter decisions for things that they're comfortable doing. Uh, I guess first thing is, am I right about that? But even so, talk to us a little bit about how you source sheets or glassware mm -hmm. or whatever, and and what advice you'd give on, on doing that? Yeah, so um, it, it's actually a range. We, you know, we did definitely design our ideal state, uh, leveraging the support of experts, an advisory board, and some early employees that um, are still with us today that have been 
have deep experience in product development and design and sourcing in these categories. So we, we definitely went through a design process on our own. And then what we did is we did a pretty exhaustive search to find the perfect supplier for each one of the, the key categories. So we launched with uh, four suppliers. We now have you know closer to 10. Um, and okay, so that- but Andres, let me just interrupt you. So, so one key lesson and one that we can we can extract and and underscore is that one supplier might be able to provide multiple SKUs, and obviously, the fewer suppliers, the better. So, you're looking for yes. suppliers that can provide multiple SKUs. All right. Yeah. Absolutely, and, yeah. and and since we launched with four key categories, and each one of those suppliers was providing that one ah. key category within a certain material range. So, for example, we had one supplier for porcelain. Mm-hmm. We had one supplier for um, for, for bedding. We had one supplier for our Terry towels. We had one supplier, you know, for glassware. And then what we did with them is we looked for partners that we could, uh, we could actually work very closely with, that we could value engineer, that we could get involved in the design process with them and work towards our ideal state, leveraging all of the constraints, uh, resources, R&D that they had invested in um, to achieve, you know, the goal with, with, with the end goal, with the ideal state of the design. Mm-hmm. And we did that across a few different parameters, you know, obviously aesthetics, functionality, practicality, um, and, and cost. You know, we wanted the products to be practical for everyday use. You know, we, we partnered with a manufacturer that has a proprietary um, technology that uses titanium coating when it comes to components of the glassware. So you can take what looks and feels like a luxury crystal wine glass and knock it over on the table or chuck it in the dishwasher and nothing happens to it. Mm-hmm. We, could, we could leverage their you know, focus on R&D to be able to uh, work towards what our goal was from either a practicality design or, or otherwise. And so the process took several months. You know, it, the, the search was relatively exhaustive. We did definitely worked within the confines of experience from our advisory board and our, and our team. And then we, you know, Worked with a few different options to prototype, and then ended up with the with the final partner. So, tell us a little bit about how daunting it is, and I guess the thing that that I often that that people often get anxious about is what the minimums are. So, let's say you're ordering glassware. What? How many pieces or or cases or however you think about it do you typically have to order to be able to get to do your own thing? Yeah, so we did we did some pretty um, unique things um, when it came to to sourcing. I'll say first and foremost, the fact that we're working primarily with Europe and the U.S. Um, and factories that are oftentimes supplying the luxury houses, and we're basically value engineering to create a product that's much more cost effective using premium materials and all the other components. We're able to work with MOQs that are much lower. Yeah. So so, so let me just yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. Say say just another word about that. So I guess the point is, if you're if one of these factories is supplying IKEA, they are used to producing a hundred thousand pieces or something like that. Exactly. But, yeah. So, but if you're used to su- supplying thousand dollar sheet sets, you might be supplying a hundred units. Uh, and so, yes. yeah. Okay. So, From an order of magnitude standpoint, that's, yeah, that's definitely right. And I think. It, don't, it doesn't only come down to just the minimum order quantity that you're talking about. Yeah. You're also talking about the replenishment times, yeah. uh, the time that it takes to get the product from the, their factory to you, 
the nimbleness and, and the, the sort of ability to move quickly, um, a lot of those things change when you're working with a factory that's able to work with much fewer minimum order quantities. Mm-hmm. And from a production standpoint, you're also working with a factory that can be a little bit more flexible with regards to their production schedule. Because if you're a small up-and-coming you know, startup, and you, you know, your inventory planning, your demand planning, all of those things are very much in, it, in their infancy, it's very difficult to determine you know, when you're going to be ordering again. And so if you're, if you're working with a partner who's anticipating but not necessarily slotting, in, slotting you into future production, you can find ways to work around that and yeah. they can you know, slot you in and things like that. Now, if you're working with a massive factory in China or, or India or what have you, it's a completely different uh, situation. Right. You know, I've always wanted to ask somebody this. Maybe you know the answer. So th- that $1,000 sheet set, seat set, mm-hmm. the, 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 seat set. No, I can't even say it. Sheet set. Wow, we found a new tongue twister. Sheet yeah. set in those department stores that I've never been in because they're 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 too fancy. But a thousand dollar sheet set is the cost of goods on your on your two hundred dollar sheet set uh, the same? And is that all middleman and markup for the luxury retailer, or is there in fact some value engineering that can be done to bring cost of goods down as well? There's definitely value engineering. Okay. I mean. Our, our margins are going to be, our gross margins are going to be, if you don't, if you're looking at the co- compared to cost of goods, yeah. are going to be, are going to be lower because they have to go through the retailer, they right. have to go through the distributor or what have you, all the different middlemen. We are working directly with that factory and it's coming to us and it's going to the customer. Mm-hmm. And so there, but beyond that, we definitely spent a lot of time finding ways that we could maximize the value to the customer whether it's little design details, whether it's sizing, whether it's, uh, you know, the components, um, where those components are incorporated in the process of getting the goods from Europe to the U.S., all kinds of different ways to, to basically maximize value to the customer. And that took quite a bit of time um, because at the end of the day, we wanted it to feel like it was you know, orders of magnitude lower than what you'd find elsewhere. Right. Um, so... T- tell us a little bit about fulfillment. You live and work in in Manhattan. I'm guessing you d- yeah. you don't have a warehouse in Manhattan. So what do you? Well, maybe you do. Tell us how you do fulfillment and yeah. what advice you'd give on that. Sure. So we we took uh, a, a, the hard road, um, going multi category with designing and developing our own packaging solution. We wanted to create packaging that was incredibly sustainable, all paper based, using recycled content and all recyclable. We really didn't want the, we wanted to differentiate ourselves also from what was out there. And we wanted an elevated unboxing experience for the customer. So beyond just the packaging and what goes around the product, in the beginning being our first you know, launch, we wanted to be able to provide an exceptional experience for the customer when it came to their fulfillment, any order issues, any outreach, uh, any of those sort of point intersections between fulfillment and customer experience. And so we undertook all of the fulfillment ourselves in-house. Mm-hmm. So we actually uh, have a warehouse in Brooklyn, um, and that warehouse has been growing exponentially over the last couple of years. But when it started, it was a small warehouse that we, that we set up from scratch, and we you know, built a team to be able to fulfill out of there directly to the customers. So when, when an order is placed, our team picks and packs that order, mm-hmm. and it goes out of, from Brooklyn and goes directly to the customer. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that. So that's that's very interesting. And the argument there, the argument for that is that you have more control over the user experience. 
you have more control. And beyond that, during the during the beginning, in the or the early days rather, when a lot of kinks are being worked out, mm-hmm. when there's probably inherent inefficiencies just in your own. You know, we spend time, for example, you know, doing 3D renderings on box sizes and components to try to find the optimal volumes and everything to launch. But then you're six months out and your entire assortment has been adjusted and all other variables have changed. All of that goes out the window. Yeah. Now, if you're working with a third-party f- f- uh, fulfillment provider, you know, basically outsourcing your fulfillment, everything, the flexibility that, that exists um, is, is much less. Yeah. And then any flexibility needed costs a lot more. Yeah. So you can't be nimble, you can't adjust, you can't evolve as easily. And there's probably a time, there might be a time down the road where we find the right partner that's going to be able to provide the level of service that we want. But maybe there isn't. We know a lot of very successful uh, brands, both direct-to-consumer and otherwise, that do their own fulfillment right now, that are maybe later stage startups than us. And they've been able to really create a, uh, maybe a, a component of competitive advantage in their experience by being able to do that and, yeah. and their cost structure as well. Yeah. I I've, Personally, I've done it both ways, and I, I think there are advantages to each way. One of the advantages of outsourcing it is you get a lot more flexibility in scaling, mm-hmm. uh, but and, season, and you manage seasonality a lot better. But you're totally right. It's much harder to learn, and it's much harder to adapt to any little missteps you have early early on. So yeah, the seasonality I, I, point is yeah. a huge one. I mean, we're we're in our you know third holiday season, um, and we've been growing exponentially, and and we're at a point where you know it it it's a major uh, challenge to be yeah. able to fulfill all the orders coming in and doing it in house where the team has to swell at that point in time, and it's you know it, it's definitely a tricky one, but uh, but it's a new challenge. Yeah. So. I want. We just have a minute or so left, but I want to ask you about something I read in preparation for the interview. Uh, so I, mm-hmm. I've been in. I've been in a store, uh, a snow store, and I was reading the the. Uh, you hosted us for an event in Manhattan. I don't remember. It was a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and and I read uh, in an article that 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 y- your house is your store, and is that still true? And and was I just missing the laundry basket when I was in your store? No. So. <laughs> It is. It was. So basically, when we, we started as an e-commerce platform, and yeah. that is the bulk of the business and the focus of the business. Yeah. But as we started to grow, we started to realize that customers, some customers really wanted to see things in person, mm-hmm. and we weren't ready to commit to a street-level store. So we created a showroom, our first showroom, called The White Space, which you did not get to see, uh. which is also our office. And actually, Rachel and I live connected in a, in a studio connected to that space. Wow. And so we host... We did host, you know, uh, customers for appointments to come and shop in person, registry and otherwise. And then we also hosted all kinds of events, and we partnered with a bunch of cool brands to create this immersive, shoppable loft. And that was our first iteration. You have to, you know, you have to make an appointment. You take an elevator up. You're in this beautiful loft space, and, and you do that. And that's still our team's office. Wow, that's where I am right now. Um, but then we also launched a pop-up this holiday season at the uh, street level. That's the one in Soho. That's the one we were in, man. So yeah. yeah, yeah, I see. I was I was going to say it's pretty convincing as an apartment, but also very expensive apartment, street level in Soho. I'm guessing that's yeah. pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, not a lot of privacy. Yeah, not a lot of privacy. <laughs> those those glass windows. All right. Well, Andres, this was uh, so interesting, and and uh, thanks so much for making the time and for joining us on this interview. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. For more information about Snow, you can visit them at snowhome.com, and that's S-N-O-W-E, home.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, 
Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.